Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. Donald Trump's rise to the presidency has had a significant impact on Republican Party politics and the conservative movement in America generally. The party is deeply split on free trade versus protectionism. You have foreign policy hawks versus neoconservatives versus Jacksonians. You have people leaving the party. You have a contingent of what are called never Trumpers. But now, and especially after the January 6th attack on the Capitol building uh, and the ongoing second impeachment process, the cleavages among elected Republicans are as clear to the general public as they have been to insiders for a while. One of the many areas of uh, disagreement is, of course, U.S. foreign policy. And I've kind of been wondering what the future trajectory of the party will look like in general, but particularly with regard to foreign policy. And right now, there's really no consensus uh, in terms of a party platform that brings Republicans together on a coherent vision for U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. role in the world. So to enlighten us, I'm pleased to have Daniel Larison on the show. Dan is a senior editor at the American Conservative Magazine, and he also co-hosts the podcast Empire Has No Clothes. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, John. It's good to be here. So as I mentioned, the conservative movement, such as it is, uh, is sort of in a process of finding itself. I remember, I mean, when I was growing up, I understood conservatives as kind of coalescing around a set of political ideas and cultural mores. It's not all that clear what beliefs or principles or political philosophies actually guide the right at this point. Particularly in the Trump years, much of that the ideology of the Republican Party was kind of drained, and it became more important to harp on political and cultural identity. And the only thing that really unified them was kind of opposition to the Democrats and whatever cadre makes up the so-called radical left. Um, but as someone who thinks of themselves as a conservative, how do you see these recent developments? What, what do you think is going on with the conservative movement today? Uh, sure, thanks. Uh, so I think one of the, the things that does still bind most conservatives together, uh, that I don't know that I would include myself in this, but that it binds most of the, the movement conservatives together is this uh, attitude of, of nationalism, uh, which Trump, of course, tapped into and, and exploited uh, very strongly with his uh, rhetoric on immigration, his rhetoric on trade, uh, and uh, to some extent his rhetoric on foreign policy in that he was emphasizing uh, American strength, American power, uh, and uh, so, you know, supposedly making America more respected in the world. Uh, of course, he didn't make America more respected in the world. He achieved just the opposite of that. Uh, but in the eyes of his followers, uh, this is uh, this is the great stuff. This is the red meat that they they eat up. And so I think uh, that's the, the one thing that does can hold all of the different factions together. In, in terms of policy, uh, I think what the Trump era has shown is that a lot of Republican voters and a lot of Republican elected officials don't actually care that much about policy ideas. Um, and that there was some, there was, there was quite a bit of evidence of that in the Bush years, uh, in the way that conservatives were willing to adopt new policy ideas simply because that's what the Bush administration wanted them to do. Uh, but in the Trump years, uh, conservatives and Republicans seem to be content to abandon policy ideas altogether to some extent. You do have some of these, uh, I guess you want to call them intellectual Trumpists, people who are trying to put a, uh, a veneer of respectability or intelligibility on Trumpist instincts. But uh, they, I don't think they're very representative uh, of their 
own faction, much less the entire party. And so uh, you have this move towards kind of anti-intellectualism, emotionalism, uh, these appeals to grievance and resentment uh, over and above everything else. And that's how you end up with this sort of uprising in defense of such a terrible president. Uh, because it's not as if he has done such great things for the country that he needs to be kept in office. Uh, but the, the, the personal attachment, the, the worship of the president himself has kind of taken the place of any kind of uh, well-thought-out agenda. One of the, I'm glad you brought up uh, the Bush years. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that the magazine you write for uh, has a kind of special place in the history of intra-conservative ideological battles. Talk a little bit about the establishment of the American Conservative magazine and what kinds of ideas were splitting conservatives back then. Sure. Well, uh, so TAC was founded or co-founded by, uh, of course, Pat Buchanan, Scott McConnell, and uh, Taki Theodore Coppolis in 2002. And they formed the magazine uh, principally as a vehicle for expressing conservative opposition to the uh, pending invasion of Iraq uh, that was already being discussed and debated that year. And uh, they, it, it was, of course, an extremely unpopular position to take at the time, especially among conservatives. For, for me, as a, a student at the time, it was very uh, exciting to see a magazine like that come out because it lined up so closely with what I was thinking about uh, in terms of foreign policy and the war, uh, the war that was about to begin. And so uh, it was a, a kind of a surprising development that they would stake out this position when it was, uh, it seemed like the politically suicidal thing to do. Uh, of course, they, uh, the magazine has been completely vindicated in the opposition to the war uh, and into and Bush's foreign policy more generally. And as we come up uh, almost 20 years now since the founding of TAC, we're starting to see some greater progress, uh, both on left and right, uh, towards a, a more well-crafted alternative to the, the current strategy of primacy. Uh, and then, of course, that's the strategy of restraint that the magazine has been championing now for, for many years. And uh, so attack uh, comes out of the, the traditions of the old right. Uh, it comes out of the, the anti-imperialist and anti-interventionist traditions in American history, uh, dating back to well before the, the existence of the conservative movement itself, and uh, draws on those traditions to uh, offer up a, an alternative that uh, actually does try to put American interests first and foremost and, and at the center of our foreign policy thinking. And so it's it's been interesting to see how that that rhetoric or that language has started to be co-opted by people that clearly don't believe in it. So you have the, the president saying that he's America first, but actually catering to the interests of other states uh, almost exclusively. And you have uh, Mike Pompeo talking about realism and restraint when the, the policy record of the Trump administration is pretty much the exact opposite of that. Uh, and and you, of course, you guys have talked about this in the book that you uh, published a couple of years ago, uh, that uh, Trump actually represents very strong continuities with previous administrations, and especially with the Bush administration, uh, in their militarism and their uh, adoption of primacy and their uh, general attitude towards the world. Do you see a connection between the Iraq war and its aftermath and what all that did to the conservative movement and why Trump became ascendant and where we are now? Or do you not see that connection? I, th there is a connection, certainly. The, the Iraq war 
was very damaging to the Republican Party, of course, with the, the country as a whole. Uh, and it also served to discredit a lot of Republican elites in the eyes of their own voters. And so the the failure of the Iraq War and the sort of the interminable nature of the conflicts that foreign policy elites kept getting us into uh, created an opening for someone like Trump uh, to exploit. Uh, not because he was a principled anti-war person, as we know he was not. Uh, he, he didn't actually oppose any of the wars during that period uh, when they began. Uh, he would simply jump on to uh, popular discontent and exploit popular discontent with those wars afterwards. And so uh, the, the failure of the war and the, the failure of the ideology that inspired the war gave Trump uh, the opportunity uh, to demagogue that failure and to, to use it for his own purposes. You know, I wonder if uh, going back a little further can help us understand better. In the 1960s, you know, elite conservatives at places like National Review and elected Republicans started to get kind of concerned about the influence of, you know, like John Birch Society groups on the right that became kind of captured by Cold War hysteria and promulgated a, a bunch of wild conspiracy theories about communist infiltration and so on. And the Republican Party back then, much like now, was actually fearful of condemning this group because it had such influence among Republican voters. And I mean, so maybe the maybe any nostalgia that I have about you know conservative unity in the past is kind of hindsight bias. Uh, well, certainly there there have always been divisions among conservatives, uh, sometimes quite uh, vicious ones. Uh, I mean, what, one of the things that National Review became famous for over the decades was its periodic purges of those elements in the conservative movement that they deemed to be no longer uh, welcome or no longer acceptable. And so th there's always been factionalism. There's always been uh, contention among uh, people on the right. But the, I think the, the Cold War provided a, a veneer of unity or a, a sense of common purpose that allowed those divisions to be masked and papered over uh, for a long time. And when you had the Soviet Union disappear, and the, the great threat uh, of communism recede and essentially become uh, irrelevant in the 90s, uh, that's when you started to see the crack up begin the first time around. And uh, it, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't as obvious in the 90s because it was a time of expansion and relative uh, peace and prosperity as far as the, the later decades were concerned. And so, Although I remember some Republican opposition to the Balkans interventions that sort of sounded like later uh, Trumpy uh, uh, opposition. Right. There, yes, there were uh, stirrings of that. And, there, and I think there were some legitimate objections to those interventions. Uh, there were also a lot of partisan opportunistic uh, objections uh, where Republicans in Congress who would normally never question presidential uh, orders to launch an attack uh, suddenly became very concerned about the Constitution. Um, and then, of course, as soon as Bush became president, they dropped all of those objections uh, immediately. Um, the, the, you know, the fight over the Balkans is interesting because it, it exposes some of those divisions that become more important later. Uh, but it was also uh, actually the vehicle for transforming some of the uh, Republican office holders from the late Cold War into uh, out and out uh, hawkish interventionists. I'm thinking especially of John McCain, 
Uh, prior to the Balkan Wars, McCain was not especially uh, aggressive in his advocacy for U.S. intervention in other places. And in fact, he was one of the early members in Congress to criticize Reagan's involvement in Lebanon, uh, which almost no one remembers uh, on either side of the debate. Uh, it's so buried by his later hawkishness. Uh, and it was actually, the, it was the Balkan Wars that propelled him into that interventionist camp. And then he just kept going from there uh, and, and never looked back. You know, as I look at um, politics today, if I think about Congress, there's an interesting thing happening where there's a certain contingent of elected Democrats who are quite willing to emphasize the need to pull back from our interventionist approach from the world. And they have a bit of overlap with a certain contingent of Republicans that are willing to do the same thing. But of course, they're not, it's not representative of the entire party. And at the same time, there's so many disincentives to work across party lines right now. And so you have this weird uh, halfway bipartisan approach on foreign policy that leaves hope for, you know, a trajectory that, that could go in our way, so to speak. Um, but I mean, do you, are, are there opportunities for Republicans and conservatives to cohere around a foreign policy? Do you expect that to happen or do you expect further kind of uh, disintegration on, on foreign policy? I, I'm hopeful that there will be more uh, cooperation between progressives and anti-war conservatives and libertarians. Uh, of course, we see that uh, institutionally to some extent in the creation of the, the Quincy Institute uh, in the last uh, year. Uh, and we've also seen it uh, in practical terms in Congress uh, in the cooperation on war powers bills, uh, especially on Yemen and more recently on in response to the assassination of Soleimani, uh, where uh, there was a bill uh, that stated that the president didn't have authority to launch an attack on Iran, uh, which should be uncontroversial, but uh, was, was surprisingly uh, hard to get. And of course, Trump vetoed that uh, as, as quickly as he could. Um, so there, there are some reasons uh, to hope that there will be a continued uh, sort of left-right alliance, uh, at least on war powers and on military interventions and, and things of that nature. In terms of larger agreement about changing U.S. foreign policy or, or uh, changing our strategy worldwide, I'm I'm a little more skeptical that there will be as much cooperation. Uh, again, because as you say, there there are strong disincentives to challenging uh, that uh, the current strategy and, and questioning it. Because of course, especially in the Republican Party, uh, whenever you start talking about uh, retrenchment or even minor adjustments. Uh, to our strategy, uh, that's when everyone starts screaming about uh, isolationism and retreat and so on. And so uh, you do see some members in the House and in the Senate on the Republican side that are willing to, to overlook some of those problems, uh, to work with Democrats on war powers. Uh, and I'm hopeful, uh, especially in the near term, that we'll see that again on Yemen, uh, because that, of course, that's one of the most urgent issues that uh, the new administration will be facing in this year. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Yemen is one of those issues that, as you, as you mentioned, um, 
Republicans and Democrats did kind of come together and uh, try to pass war powers resolution to stop our involvement. Unfortunately, it was vetoed, but that is one of the issues that uh, there we did see some cooperation on. So um, give us a little bit of background on that. We know recently, uh, as the Trump administration was uh, leaving, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, imposed uh, a, a designation of official terrorist designation on the Houthi group, which is uh, the main belligerent in Yemen. And uh, that presents all kinds of problems with regard to delivering humanitarian aid. And uh, it looks like the Biden administration has at least um, pumped the brakes on that. But, but give us the background. Sure. So the, the Saudi coalition started their intervention in Yemen in March 2015. Uh, the uh, Obama administration at the time uh, through its support behind that coalition, uh, providing them with refueling and arms and uh, logistical support uh, and intelligence support, as well as providing them diplomatic cover at the UN and elsewhere. And uh, that then morphed into a, a more escalated campaign as uh, when Trump took over and he removed any remaining restrictions that the Obama people had put in place to limit uh, the kinds of weapons that the Saudis and the UAE were getting. The, the Houthis uh, had taken over the country, or had taken over the northern part of the country at least, uh, in 2014, and then they had driven the uh, Saudi-backed president out of the country uh, the following year, and it was the the flight of the the Saudi-backed president that led uh, directly to the intervention. For the last six years, the U.S. has been consistently backing the Saudis and the UAE uh, as they uh, devastate the country, uh, and and also strangle it with economic warfare and blockade, and. Uh, now, uh, as a parting shot, uh, you mentioned Pompeo's designation of the Houthis, uh, which would effectively uh, cut off northern Yemen from the outside world uh, in terms of economic exchange and humanitarian aid. Uh, and uh, many aid agencies have warned that this would be this would lead directly to a massive famine, probably the worst in forty years. And so, the Biden administration has uh, suspended that for a month, using a license to essentially say that aid, org aid organizations and businesses and banks can continue to do business that they've been doing. They won't run afoul of U.S. sanctions uh, while the Biden administration does a review of uh, that issue and I hope uh, chooses to reverse the designation, uh, which, is, which is also a baseless designation because the Houthis don't engage in terrorism against the United States. Uh, and it, it's always made it very strange that we're in this war against them when prior to the intervention, uh, they were actually tacit partners of ours against Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. So it's very, uh, it's a very bizarre policy. It's a, it's an awful policy. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will follow up on reversing the designation by ending all U S support for the war as well. And that's something that Biden has said uh, that he's going to do that. At least that's what he said during the campaign. I think a lot of people are hoping that that uh, turns out to be the case. Do you think that, uh, I mean, what is the, what is the discussion among Republicans on this issue? What's, what's the strong Republican conservative foreign policy argument for continuing to back the Saudis in this war, which is really damaging, not only on a humanitarian basis, but in terms of like us interests, it's not, beneficial. And I think the other side on the right tends to just see this through the lens of Iran. And so long as the Houthis have some kind of connection to Iran, 
their Iran hysteria will lead them to support the Saudis. But that kind of reveals the problem with our approach to that region in general. So, I mean, among conservatives, how, is, there, is this one of those issues that maybe we can bring into a, a more of a consensus position that we should not support uh, repressive monarchical authoritarians as they slaughter defenseless and impoverished populations that neighbor them? Uh, that seems like a basic argument that conservatives should be able to hop onto. It, it should be. And I, and I think you, you do see a lot, uh, a lot more support for ending our involvement from the right uh, than you might see uh, with some other wars, actually. Um, that's why the, the Yemen war powers challenge was able to uh, not just reach the floor, but to pass both houses multiple times, uh, despite uh, resistance from the leadership, despite resistance from the Pentagon, uh, despite resistance from the president. And so there there was a, a strong sense that not only was this policy uh, wrong and harmful uh, to our interests and to, to regional stability, uh, but there was also the, the constitutional question that informed a lot of conservative opposition to it, which is that Congress had never authorized our involvement in this conflict. Uh, and so that uh, that brought over some people, I think, who might otherwise buy into the anti-Iran argument, uh, specious as it is, uh, because they saw this as a case of presidential overreach uh, and, and a, a case where Congress needed to claim back some of its responsibilities. And so I, I think, especially when you have uh, an unauthorized military intervention like this, that's where uh, the opportunity to win over conservatives is strongest, uh, because the, the war powers argument does have some real purchase there. And I think uh, it also helps that the war uh, is being waged primarily by the Saudis. Uh, the Saudi government is extremely unpopular in this country uh, for good reason. Uh, and the, the relationship with the Saudis is extremely unpopular in this country. And so uh, those things all combined to make for a, a, an unusually strong uh, opposition uh, to this policy. Looking forward, I'm not sure how much uh, conservative criticism of the Saudis and UAE we're going to keep seeing. Uh, it was there, there was a, a, a brief moment there, especially following the murder of Khashoggi uh, in 2018, uh, where it became very uh, advantageous for Republican politicians to position themselves as being anti-Saudi, even though they t traditionally weren't. And it helped that the Saudi government was behaving especially recklessly in most of its foreign policy dealings, uh, provoking and, and alienating everyone. And so. I, I I wish it weren't so, but I I fear that that's probably going to be the high water mark of pushback on these kinds of relationships on the right, and we're going to see during the Biden years uh, a reversion to the same old. Uh, we have to stand with our allies. We have to oppose the evil mullahs, uh, and and there will be no learning going on at all. And unfortunately, that's one of the things we've seen on the right for the last twenty years. You have catastrophic policy failures, uh, many of them. Uh, eagerly supported by hawks in the Republican Party, and then there's uh, really no learning that takes place after that as to why we shouldn't do that again. You know, one of my concerns in for the post-Trump years was that there'd be a lot of um, incentive uh, on the Democratic side to do anti-Trump things or things that are perceived as anti-Trump. And as you kind of implied, that part of that means uh, sort of uh, reinforcing our commitment to allies. Um, and I, I suspect um, that part of it will manifest in a kind of tougher 
more hardline position towards Russia because of Trump's kind of obsequious rhetoric towards Russia. There might be some some hope, though, that this uh, this won't turn out to be as much of a partisan uh, issue. It's uh, apparent that uh, the Biden administration is interested in uh, trying to save the, the New START treaty and do some kind of arms control diplomacy with Russia. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe in general what you expect out of the Biden administration's approach towards Russia and if there's chances for Republican uh, agreement uh, along those lines? Sure. Um, so the, the, the good news first uh, is that Biden and Putin have agreed to an extension of New START. Uh, on our end, the extension of the treaty uh, doesn't require any action by Congress. It can be done uh, by the president himself. Um, of course, this is the arms reduction treaty that was uh, ratified in 2010 and went into force in 2011. Uh, it was due to expire in just a matter of, uh, in I think, two weeks from now. And so it was it was very urgent that Biden act on this because this is the last real arms control treaty still standing uh, after the Trump administration took out all the rest. And so that's a that's a promising sign for some basic level of a constructive relationship with Moscow. But I, I notice that it is paired uh, in both Biden's rhetoric and his actions with a, a generally more uh, combative attitude towards Russia overall. And so he he and his officials, his national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, for example, speaking out very uh, loudly against the detention of uh, Navalny in Russia uh, and also uh, calling attention to alleged uh, Russian interference uh, in our politics. So there's there's definitely a, a sharper edge to Biden's dealings with Russia on a lot of on a lot of issues. And I expect that to continue. Uh, Biden has traditionally been something of a Russia hawk. He has been a big proponent of NATO expansion in the past. He has supported sending uh, lethal assistance to Ukraine uh, and, and continues to support that today. And I imagine uh, that there are going to be a number of issues where uh, the US and Russia continue to clash uh, quite sharply because, uh, because of this approach from Biden. And I, I am a I don't know that I'm that worried about more NATO expansion that might precipitate a crisis, but that, that's certainly a possibility. I recently uh, saw a, uh, a statement from uh, Mitt Romney, who's kind of at the center of this uh, split within the Republican Party. And he suggested uh, that, you know, there's going to be a battle uh, for leadership over the party. And it can either go to folks like Larry Hogan and Tom Cotton on the one hand, or uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley on the other. Now, that has all kinds of implications, including for foreign policy, which is what we talk about here. But um, talk about that battle, how you think it's playing out and how you think it, it might play out over the next four years. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Romney's comment, uh, because I I noticed that one as well, and I, I thought it was very funny that he put Tom Cotton in the, the first group uh, among those Republicans that I suppose Romney thought of as the, the responsible ones, the, the, the serious statesmen, if you will, uh, when Tom Cotton is probably one of the biggest uh, trolls in Congress, not to mention one of the biggest hawks. Uh, so it's, it's very strange to think of him as being, uh, in any way, a kind of responsible leader. 
but I think the, the reason that Romney divided them up that way is that uh, Cotton did end up being on the side, the more responsible side of the Republican Party in terms of his reaction to uh, Trump's attempt to steal the election. Uh, whereas Cruz and Hawley threw in uh, entirely with Trump, uh, have been very proud about throwing in with Trump. Uh, Cotton has been, I think, a bit smarter about it and has held his fire and uh, not gotten onto that side of it. And uh, he did not challenge the uh, certification of the election when it came up to a, up for a vote. Uh, and so I, I think Romney is looking at it in, in terms of uh, domestic politics or in terms of uh, which Republicans are on his side of that particular divide. Uh, when we look at the, the foreign policy dimension of it, uh, I don't know that there is such a sharp divide. Uh, Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley are actually uh, pretty much simpatico. As, as I understand it, Hawley looks to Cotton as a mentor. And so... Uh, and Ted Cruz isn't exactly uh, dove of the month either. I, well, no, exactly. Uh, so as you look ahead uh, for uh, likely 2024 candidates on the Republican side, you're actually looking at a bunch of candidates that, or possible candidates that are uh, not that different from each other in terms of their hawkish approach to things. Uh, it may only be in terms of the degree of their hawkishness, uh, where, where Cotton is probably the, the most hardline of the bunch. Uh, Hawley may be somewhat less so, at least rhetorically. Uh, but when it actually comes down time to vote on things, uh, he and Cotton end up being on the same side. Uh, and, and for that matter, so does Cruz. So while we have seen some encouraging signs of greater interest in war powers, uh, some stirrings in favor of restraint on the right, uh, when you look at the elected leadership, uh, you're not seeing that at all. And in fact, you see uh, most of the most ambitious politicians going in the opposite direction, uh, which I think long-term actually spells bad news for the Republican Party because it's going to make them more toxic uh, over time as they become identified more and more with that kind of uh, reflexive militarism. Yeah, it's interesting in, in a way, like for all that I said about the differences and disagreements within the Republican Party and the conservative movement, I sometimes get the sense that elected Republicans I mean, there is there are differences between uh, some of these elected Republicans, and there's certain aspects of the party that uh, I would like to see extinguished uh, earlier, sooner than than others. But um, it seems sometimes that the the populism uh, that characterizes a lot of Republican rhetoric these days, um, when it comes to foreign policy is pretty thin. Maybe it's calculated to when uh, Trump is no longer a major factor and uh, uh, sort of uh, setting the tone for how we talk about U.S. foreign policy. But they'll still be rather populist and Trumpy on other issues. So it's like the worst of both worlds in a sense. If all these Trump-leaning populists retain their hawkishness on foreign policy, you get a kind of Republican Party that's morphing towards Trump, uh, but maintaining its traditional interventionist approach to foreign policy, and 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 that seems uh, not great. That seems like a a, a double whammy in terms of uh, negative news uh, in the future. I, well, yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, what one of the things that I've noticed uh, during the Trump years is that what one of the ways that Trump manages to 
keep the party united behind him or the way that he did keep them united behind him when he was president is uh, simply through uh, projecting sort of aggressiveness and uh, and combativeness. And so they, they would reward him uh, simply for uh, making uh, sort of deranged threats against other countries. It didn't matter to them that he didn't carry them out. It didn't matter to them that these threats may have increased the chances of war. Uh, what they wanted to see was the display of aggressiveness uh, as a way of projecting uh, American greatness in their minds. And so I think that's uh, that's where you're going to see uh, a lot of the, the so-called populists trying to, to have it both ways, where they'll they'll talk as though they want to get into 10 different wars, uh, but they'll actually be more uh, careful in practice, uh, but they'll, they'll still end up ratcheting up these fears of foreign threats, uh, which will ultimately make it harder for us to get out of a lot of these conflicts. Well, I, I didn't get the ray of, of hope and sunshine that I, that I hoped I might in talking to you, but thanks so much for coming on the show, Dan. Uh, thanks very much, John. I appreciate it. 